This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Gogurt. Wish your milk were thick and squeezed out of a tube? Try Gogurt today. Welcome to episode 15 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about vitamins, the thing everyone in my generation thinks the Flintstones are. Vitamins are an important part of our diets, as I'm sure you all know very well after being bombarded on TV with ads like these. Multivitamins provide 100% or more daily value of 20 vitamins and minerals, including high-potency B vitamins. It's a great, big, beautiful day to be alive. Just to be clear, is she this happy because she took the multivitamin or because she can now brag to all of her friends that she's healthier than them because she takes a multivitamin? I mean, even if this were a Xanax advertisement, I'd say it's a little overboard. Unless you're Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling in the middle of Act 2 in La La Land, or you just watch Tom Brady throw a pick six in his final pass in a Patriots uniform, if you're that happy, you need to cut it out. But vitamins aren't just in gummy bears and Barney Rubble-shaped pieces of chalk, they're in the food we eat. It's the most straightforward way to get them, and according to medical experts, the healthiest way to get them which is one reason why it's especially concerning to hear stories like this. Most Zimbabweans are already struggling to put food on the table. Years of drought, rising inflation, and now coronavirus have seen food prices soar. That clip was from April, and while food insecurity has been an issue all over the world for a long time, countries in sub-Saharan Africa like Zimbabwe have been facing some new challenges, such as increasing drought due to climate change, and this year, the coronavirus. And I know that's harder to break down than a steak from a diner, so instead, let's discuss a really small piece of that problem. Due to this reduced food availability, we've seen upticks this year in a vitamin deficiency disease called pellagra. In Zimbabwe this year, pellagra cases have gone from 86 cases in March to 141 in April to 220 in May to 230 in June. Of course, compared to coronavirus, those numbers sound equivalent to the number of pigs with motorcycles or the number of Oscars Bradley Cooper's won, but as we'll discuss, pellagra is not contagious and it's easily preventable, making these increasing numbers cause for concern. So today, we'll go over what causes pellagra, why it still exists, and where we could go from here. But first, what is pellagra? Pellagra is a vitamin deficiency disease most commonly caused by chronic lack of niacin, which is vitamin B3. The clinical presentation observed with pellagra includes dermatitis, dementia, and diarrhea, the three Ds. Are you sure about that? Because I looked up the three Ds in Urban Dictionary and it did not say dermatitis, dementia, and diarrhea. Pellagra, also known as pellagra and... Pellagra is caused by a major deficiency in vitamin B3, also known as niacin. Niacin is found in a lot of foods, such as meat, fish, milk, vegetables, legumes, and even some grains like brown rice and whole wheat. 
The amino acid tryptophan also can be converted to niacin in the body. And if tryptophan sounds familiar, let me jog your memory. I cannot remember a Thanksgiving when someone didn't ask what football game is on, sit on the couch, talk about how unbelievably tired they are, and then ask, what is that thing in Turkey called that makes you so tired? And then someone yells out, I think it's tryptophan or something. I am so tired of tryptophan. That is so stupid. Wow, if you are going to use Siri to record a video complaining about tryptophan, at least pick one of the fun voices. You know they have an Australian accent one, right? So without niacin and without tryptophan, people can develop pellagra and with it, dermatitis, dementia, diarrhea, and other symptoms such as sensitivity to sunlight, intolerance to odors, aggression, hair loss, insomnia, loss of coordination, and more. For some, pellagra is even fatal. But you've probably never heard of pellagra, and there's a reason. If your diet has niacin, you won't get pellagra. It's like vitamin C preventing scurvy, or carbohydrates preventing you from telling people 24-7 about how healthy the keto diet is while eating a fistful of pepperoni. And with the exception of certain areas of the world facing extreme food insecurity like we've discussed before, most of us are fortunate enough to have plenty of niacin in our diets. In the United States, though, that wasn't always the case. Now, in the early 1900s, pellagra started to become a big problem in America, specifically the American South. About 3 million people came down with pellagra, and more than 100,000 people died from it. People, and disproportionately poor people, women, and African Americans in the South were dying, and they didn't know why. So in 1914, the U.S. Surgeon General tasked Dr. Joseph Goldberger of the Public Health Service with figuring it out. Goldberger did some research and found that similar outbreaks had occurred in Spain and Italy decades earlier, and many were suggesting corn to be the cause. But this was also the time when the germ theory was gaining traction, and doctors everywhere thought every disease was caused by germs. Germs were cool, and apparently a hundred years later, they still haven't gone out of style. Do you know who I am? I'm part of an army that's everywhere. What? You don't see us around you? Aha! We're very, very, very tiny. You can't see us with open eyes. But Dr. Goldberger didn't fall for the germ hype and instead conducted some experiments. At that time, the southern poor had an extremely corn-based diet. And considering just the corn in a Chipotle burrito leads to explosive diarrhea, I can only imagine how bad pellagra made it. So Dr. Goldberger went to an orphanage full of pellagra patients and received funding to provide a group of test subjects a healthy diet with eggs, meat, and milk. After six months, just one patient had pellagra. They were cured. But that wasn't enough proof. If pellagra was a deficiency disease, then Goldberger should be able to induce it with diet. And his resulting experiment was, uh... Let's just say it was probably unethical even back then. He got 12 prisoners to volunteer as test subjects in exchange for pardons from the governor of Georgia. For six months, he isolated them in an outbuilding and restricted their diet to low-calorie, low-nutrition foods. Of the 11 that completed the study, six developed pellagra. Dr. Goldberger, if no one told you before... That is so stupid. And if you're a little peeved by Dr. Goldberger's methods... You might be happy to hear that in his next experiment, he did some tests on himself. 
Since the germ theory was so popular and many doctors still believed pellagra was spread through germs, he wanted proof that pellagra was not caused by a germ. So he threw a pellagra party. The party kicked off by drawing blood from a pellagra victim and injecting it into each other. Then they'd swab the victim's nasal cavity and stick the cotton up their own nose. Next, they'd swab the victim's throat, then their own. And finally, they'd prepare a mixture from the victim's feces, urine, and rash scabs, make it into a pill, ugh, and swallow it. In other words, a University of North Carolina Chapel Hill frat party. But amazingly, no one at the party got pellagra. I'm assuming they got every single other disease in existence and invented some new ones, but no pellagra. So Dr. Goldberger had his proof. We improve diets and we eradicate pellagra. It wasn't until years after he died that scientists discovered the specific vitamin niacin that proved to be the link. But when Dr. Goldberger reached that milestone, he pushed the U.S. government to support the South with policy to help people gain access to healthier diets. That would, of course, require taking a hard look in the mirror, addressing issues of race, gender, poverty, and even agricultural systems. The leaders in the South didn't want to see those changes, so they squashed Dr. Goldberger's efforts. And I tell you this story because one, I wanted to ruin your life by telling you about poop pills, and two, those underlying agricultural, economic, and justice issues have happened and continue to happen all over the world. In the southern African country of Lesotho, for example, a pellagra outbreak occurred in the mid-1900s and peaked with 8,602 cases in 1959. That's over 1% of the country's population of 639,000. At the time, Lesotho was a British territory called Basutoland, seven years away from gaining independence. And since we know pellagra comes from a major niacin deficiency, that begs the question, why were the people of Basuto land, or the Basoto, suddenly not getting enough niacin? Well, before Britain claimed Basuto land as a British territory in 1884, the Basoto had very well-rounded diets, including locally cultivated milk, beans, pumpkins, and a popular cereal called sorghum. But like the European Union and pudding, the British went and messed it up. To pay taxes, many Basoto men had no choice but to abandon their farms for union jobs in South Africa, jobs which often conflicted with harvest seasons. As such, the Basoto had to turn to an easier, higher-yield crop, maize. Combine that with some massive droughts, and it's no wonder that people couldn't access or afford a nutritious diet. They were eating little besides corn, and sure enough, got pellagra. But Britain didn't want to admit that their economic policies and colonial rule created a problem. Just listen to this 1947 British documentary about the king's visit to Basutoland. Towards dusk, the Basutos meet by the campfire. To them, it has been a thrilling day. To the royal family, it has been yet another sign of South Africa's loyalty. Okay. First of all, I think you're confusing loyalty with colonizing someone else's land. And second of all, you call French fries chips. To their credit, Basuto land worked to combat pellagra. But instead of fixing the issues that caused the shift to corn-based diets, they put their effort into educating people about the importance of nutrition. 
They encouraged women to plant vegetable gardens. And this did help. Some people argue those policies worked. But when we know exactly what causes pellagra, the Basoto know exactly what causes pellagra, and we still see pellagra cases in modern-day Lesotho in 2020, it's hard to say the problem isn't over. And it's no wonder the problem isn't over, because agriculture in Lesotho didn't magically revert back to the pre-1880 system once Lesotho gained independence, and many people there still face similar economic burdens and, of course, increasing droughts. While some communities have found the time to grow gardens, Lesotho largely relies on imports for food. In 2020, the coronavirus destroyed the supply chain that got that food to Lesotho. And once again, a disease whose cure is as simple as any food beside corn is here. I know we don't usually go this in-depth with the history of an issue, and that's for good reason. The only history I actually know is the history of post-1980 sitcoms and the movie Goodfellas, which was apparently based on a true story, though to be fair, there's a 99% chance that Martin Scorsese just thought The Godfather was a documentary. But the pellagra issue is different from many of our other episodes because the solution is so glaringly simple. Get people niacin. Doing that requires an understanding of why they didn't have it in the first place. That's not to say there's only one way of getting people niacin, or solving it is politically impossible. There are definitely multiple strategies, from technological innovations to structural changes, that can eliminate pellagra and possibly make other economic equality and health improvements in the process. To start, let's look at what happened in the United States. Thankfully, eventually, with education and fortification of foodstuff, this disease ceased to be. It's not really around, you know, thanks to varied diets and, you know, these type of vitamins being added to food. Improved diets and education was certainly part of it, but the big move in the United States, which, mind you, happened decades after Joseph Goldberger's death, was to fortify everything with niacin. Today, most breads and cereals have niacin added in. And since we rarely see pellagra in the United States, some argue that this solution worked. But some other people argue niacin fortification is like covering your broken car window with duct tape or adding Jonathan Banks to the cast of Community when Donald Glover left it doesn't fix the underlying cause of the problem. Malnutrition still exists in the United States, and Cheerios and Wonder Bread probably aren't the answer. But that's not to say other countries still struggling with pellagra couldn't consider niacin fortification. Educating vulnerable populations, which happened in the United States and in countries like Lesotho, has similar results. It helps to a degree, and has reduced pellagra cases before, but it only helps to the extent that people have access to foods containing niacin. It's sort of like when your therapist tells you you'll be less anxious if you sleep more, but you have eight final exams in the next week. You're understanding what's happening to you a little better, but you can't actually prevent it. And again, that education is a key step and has helped jumpstart projects like community gardens that have helped a lot. But as these economic realities become compounded by climate change, many are suggesting that larger steps are necessary to fully address the likely possibility of increased malnutrition, which would likely result in more pellagra cases. We and others 
particularly governments, uh, need to enable vulnerable communities, vulnerable countries uh, to be able to withstand the impacts of climate change, those droughts and floods that you mentioned that are now perennial and that the scientists tell us are going to become more frequent and more severe. That was Jura Burke, a spokesman for the World Food Program in Southern Africa. And the World Food Program can help in a number of ways, from emergency preparedness to disaster relief to economic assistance. However, as we discussed in the United Nations Environment Program episode last month, UN programs have less power than I did when I was negotiating my bedtime as a five-year-old. Since food is a global system and many of these issues come from importation, countries would need to discuss the level of authority they would like the World Food Program to have over them to improve food security around the world. Countries can also design policies domestically to incentivize better agricultural and economic practices. To ensure hunger becomes a thing of the past, farmers in drought-affected Okambani County are now trying to adapt to these changes and are now being urged to plant drought-resistant pulse a crop such as beans, soya, dry peels, and lentils. That was a news report from Kenya, and many other countries are encouraging drought-resistant crops too. While drought-resistant maize does exist, Taking it a step further and incentivizing drought-resistant crops like legumes allows communities to withstand droughts and improve their diets simultaneously. And governments have plenty of other options too, from providing domestic food aid to using market mechanisms to influence consumer behavior. While none of these strategies are perfect, they certainly have potential to not just eradicate pellagra, but make huge strides in world hunger and malnutrition and prepare our food system for the threats of climate change. Given how pellagra numbers have come down considerably in the last century and are not particularly high today, it's tempting to shrug this issue off. But as it did with countless other issues, the coronavirus exposed the reality that pellagra isn't solved. Since we know exactly how to prevent it, and it's as simple as a half-decent diet, Pellagra is an issue that is absolutely worth confronting and checking off the list of issues once and for all. And when we do, we'll have healthier people, a food system more resilient to climate change, and we can actually walk out the door and say, It's a great big beautiful day to be alive. Have you ever watched cows belch methane and take up billions of acres of land and wonder, what could we do to make more of these? If so, Gogurt is for you. Not only will you be adding even more climate-changing cows, but you'll create millions of single-use plastic tubes that will end up in our landfills in no time. But hey, at least you didn't need a spoon. Gogurt, because the animals isn't cool anymore. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Christopher Kahns, a professor of African environmental history at Tufts University. Dr. Kahns, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Ethan. So uh, first off, a lot of diseases that still exist today are ones where we don't know the cause or we don't know how to treat it or maybe they're genetic, but with pellagra, we know it's caused by a niacin deficiency and we know that a diet with niacin and tritophan solves it. So it's awful to see in drought years, countries like Lesotho still seeing pellagra outbreaks. So why haven't we been able to eradicate it yet? Well, the first thing I will say is the disconnect between uh, science, policy, and practices. 
So around early part of the 1900s in, in the United States, particularly in the South, some scientists worked very hard on this and they were getting near discovering the micronutrient deficiency. But immediately the, there was pushback against the scientists who said that it was this monotonous diet and pointed to poverty caused by the broader economic dysfunction of, of society. And perhaps not surprisingly, politicians pushed back saying that there was no you know, poverty of this sort in, in the American South. If we go over to Southern Africa, a similar thing was taking place through the 1930s, 40s, 50s, where lots of quite good research into the scientific causes of the disease was done, some of which included reference to the reasons why so many people were poor and why so many people found themselves eating diets of refined maize meal processed into a kind of polenta-like cake called papa and little else. But where it came to move that science into policy, there's a disconnect. And the disconnect comes, uh, as far as I can tell, from a desire by the certain governments in control at this point, a colonial government, a British colonial government, for keeping the society set up, in this case, to provide cheap labor to South African mines and industries. So this year, we've seen countries like Zimbabwe and Mozambique see outbreaks as well, where coronavirus has disrupted the economy and the food supply chain, which forced some people back into these corn-based diets. And I'm wondering, what have you taken away from the coronavirus crisis as it pertains to pellagra, and what changes would you hope to see going forward? So in a number of places in East Africa, through Central Africa, Southern Africa, the staple is basically a, a refined maize meal cooked into a kind of thick, stiff porridge. And then ideally eaten with vegetables, beans, various milk products, and certainly meat, on a, at least on occasion. And so near as I can tell, with the disruption from the COVID pandemic, there will be more and more imports into some of these places and the imports are likely to be at least in large part refined maize meal and so refined maize meal itself is not what causes the pellagra right it is the absence of other nutrient rich particularly rich in, in niacin and in tryptophan foods and so the research that i've done in, in 20th century lesotho people had depending on, on who, who they were had small holdings of agricultural lands in, in Lesotho. And so most people had to at least supplement the income and food that they got from agriculture with work in South Africa. This work came mostly in the forms of mine work, particularly in gold mines, but also in other industries in South Africa. And so the structure of the political economy during the colonial period, and particularly during the period of segregationist and eventually apartheid in South Africa, was designed for rural people in places like Lesotho to need that labor in South Africa. There's a way of compelling people to work within this particular political economy. And through that, people often sent money home and families at home subsisted more and more on refined maize meal. And Lesotho is a small place, right? But I would venture to say that the ways in which our global economy is structured these types of migrations are happening all over the world. And in the United States, the most obvious parallel would be migration systems of people coming from Mexico, other parts of Latin America to work 
in agricultural work on various large farms, harvesting, planting, and so forth. And I, while I haven't done a lot of research on that, I would imagine that this kind of social situation creates fertile ground for lots of undernutrition, malnutrition of various sorts, both for the workers themselves, but also for people that are relying on their wages back home and often do not have the benefit of their labor back home on rural farms and gardens and so forth. So speaking of the United States, a major part of eliminating pellagra here was actually fortifying food with niacin. And on the one hand, that may have been a cheaper and quicker way to combat the disease, which it did do, but it didn't really address these social and economic causes that you've talked about as to why these people had these poor diets. So looking back historically, can we consider fortifying food an effective strategy to reduce pellagra, or should the focus be on spurring dietary improvements or some combination of the two? So I think that fortifying food um, can be good. It certainly contributed to reducing pellagra, though I don't know that somebody who subsists on refined maize meal with fortification of niacin in it is, is necessarily healthy. They may not have pellagra, but I, don't, I, I certainly would argue that that's not a very healthy diet. Uh, indeed, the people who end up eating that kind of diet would, would tell you the same thing. I think that there is a great danger in placing too much emphasis on a technical solution like flour fortification to solve what is, I would argue, a much bigger social problem to do with the political economy in which people end up eating maize meal and, and little butt. And while I think that medications and fortifications, fortified seeds is a, is a big buzz in the agricultural world, you know, as well as people that propose that we just suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere. I think that there's, there's importance of these things, but we run the risk of masking the more important social, economic, and political problems of how these situations get created. I know corn is a really popular crop in the U.S., and I'm wondering in these regions where pellagra has popped up, is it that corn is necessarily the main or only crop that people are growing, or is it more due to the economic factor of corn being a cheap food? Maize is not indigenous to, to Southern Africa. It's, of course, indigenous to, to Central America. But it did get popular fairly quickly, uh, you know, around where modern-day Lesotho is. It grew well in most parts of, of that region, particularly on wet years. It harvested a kind of heavier yield per acre than the indigenous sorghum. But sorghum was much more drought-resistant. It remains more drought-resistant. However, it requires a much more rigorous labor application. And so it's a combination of an appropriateness for environment, but, but more importantly, it was more conducive to having workers away from farms for at least part of the year. And it's through the kind of late 1800s and through the first half of the 1900s that it becomes the staple. It displaces the indigenous sorghum and various forages associated with that to become the staple. Now, simultaneously, you have more highly processed, refined, meal being imported from South Africa and beyond during that period. Then there's changes in, in processing techniques that also remove the husk and remove more of the nutritional value in order to make it more storable and shippable. And people begin to take to that 
style of maize meal. While all these things are important, the question always remains is, well, why did people during a certain period start eating so much refined maize meal and little else? Because you can eat all the refined maize meal you'd like if it's supplemented with a variety of other foods, which was a standard diet for a time. So we have to look to, again, back to that kind of broader functioning of society if we want to understand the depth and kind of dynamics of the problem. As a historian, what would you say to perhaps policymakers or people in these communities that are still pellagra prone in the world that are trying to get rid of this, but perhaps still face droughts or face economic disruptions through coronavirus or other things that are still creating these outbreaks? I would say that, uh, sure, nutrition programs and nutritional education in schools and all of that stuff is well and good, but it's not likely to solve larger global inequalities of nutrition. You know, when the Food and Agricultural Organization was formed um, back in, what, 1943, its founders had big visions and they hoped to improve and make more just the global system in which food was exchanged, bought, produced, which would involve fixing prices, which would involve assisting smaller farmers and fewer subsidies for larger farmers in grain exporting countries. They had big, big ambitions. But when it came to the actual practice, these international institutions, like so many international institutions, were only as powerful as their supporters' desire to help them make those changes that they viewed as essential to making a more just and equitable food system. Frankly, the large funders of the FAO, like the WHO too, could easily argue that this isn't what they were interested in. So the FAO, as an important international institution for food and, and eating and nutrition, was basically relegated to technical surveys and large technical reports and technically based programs, but they weren't able to do much to shift the larger economic and political inequalities in the global food system. And so, you know, as far as what somebody like me as a historian would tell governments, while I'd, I'm not ready to say that the market doesn't play an important part, there has to be a lot done to close the gap that is give the food importing countries more power to shape the way food is produced, exported, imported, if we want to seriously talk about you know, feeding a hungry world. And not just feeding them, but enabling people to access not just food itself, but the kinds of food that they want in order to sustain healthy bodies. Dr. Cons, thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Ethan. Great talking with you guys. This wraps up episode 15 of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Christopher Kahn's for his insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Frank Hernandez, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.